I get to the bottom of like, okay, how does a slot machine work? And it works on this three-part system that I call the scarcity loop. So it's got three parts. It's got opportunity, it's got unpredictable rewards, and three, it has quick repeatability. So if you think about social media, it falls into that system. It's like, if you post, you have an opportunity to get status, right? Through likes mm -hmm. and comments, and but you don't know how many likes you're gonna get. You don't know how many comments you're gonna get. You don't know if they're gonna be good comments. You don't know if they're gonna be bad comments. Like, you don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah. You could go viral or someone could tell you you're ugly, right? <laughs> but if you look at gambling, like that industry is so heavily regulated. With social media, there's none of that. Welcome to the Minimal Mom Podcast. Dawn reaches a million women each month with practical tips to simplify your home. Today, Dawn is joined by Michael Easter, a New York Times bestselling author, journalist, and professor who wrote the books The Comfort Crisis and Scarcity Brain. His work explores how we can leverage modern science and evolutionary wisdom to perform better and live healthier and more meaningful lives. His ideas have been adopted by NASA, MLB teams, NCAA D1 athletic programs, U.S. Special Force units, Fortune 500 companies, and millions of people worldwide. All right. Well, Michael, you are the author of Scarcity Brain and The Comfort Crisis. I have talked at length about comfort crisis because do you know what is, what's so ironic to me is that as human beings, we have we have won at the game of life. We have solved all the problems that made our lives so difficult for our ancestors. Um, I mean, I'm not that far removed from my grandparents' farm and knowing a lot of the difficulties that they experienced in their lifetimes. Here we are, we should be happier than ever. Life has never been easier uh, physically for us. And yet we also have never been the least happy either. So what initially drove you to write the comfort crisis and then later on scarcity brain? Yeah, great question. I mean, there's a handful of things, but I think it was really just, I mean, making the observation that you just kind of made. Um, I had worked at uh, Men's Health Magazine for a lot of years and um, pretty much everything that we covered in that magazine that, you know, it's all stuff that you do to improve your life. Like it's how to get healthier, how to, I don't know, get your mental health in order, all these sorts of things. You had to often do things that were challenging and uncomfortable in order to get the benefit. It's like, mm -hmm. if you want to get healthier, you probably have to exercise and exercise is uncomfortable. Yeah. Improving your mental health usually takes asking yourself some hard questions and having hard conversations and, and that's uncomfortable. You know, if you look at the trajectory of humanity in the world, we've been improving really rapidly, especially since like the industrial revolution and pretty much all the advances we've made that most influence people's lives today, they're all designed to make your life easier, uh, more effortless and more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And like, that's great. Like that's a result of progress. But at the same time, we know that improving your life, life often takes doing uncomfortable things. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's kind of this mismatch in the environments we live in and what, um, keeps us happy and healthy. Yeah. yeah. You know, even as you're saying that, I'm talking about working at men's health and everything. Uh, my husband did one of the like tough mutter events where you go, you get muddy and you know, you're trying to do these like hard physical things. And I'm like, wow, that was like, honestly, growing up on a farm, that was like a Saturday chasing the cows when they got out. Right. But now here we are having to manufacture adventure into our life and difficult things. Cause exactly like you said, like it's, it's not built into our life anymore. And so our audience is primarily women. Um, and so as you look at like, you know, modern day motherhood, you don't have kids uh, right now, but you've obviously observed this in women's lives as well. 
I mean, most of us as moms, we're like, life is hard right now, but yet we're still we're still not getting that fix that we need, though, for life to feel satisfying, though. I feel like a lot of what makes life hard for a lot of people now is things that are pretty new in the grand scheme of time and space. It's like packed schedules. It's like, oh, my kid's not getting a certain grade. It's like we made up grades like 100 years ago. I mean, this is this mm. artificial idea. So like the things that we stress about are, are really new. And mm. um that's what's hard. And so I think that um, finding ways to add the type of discomforts and things that are challenging that humans faced for millions and millions of years uh, is a way to improve your life. So example, more time outside, like Mm -hmm. people spend 95% of their time indoors now. And it's like, well, why do we spend so much time indoors? It's because everything is pre-programmed, everything is temperature controlled, there's couches. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also know that Time outdoors is one of the best things that you can do for your mental health, for your kids' mental health, for Mm -hmm. your kids' creativity, for your creativity, on and on and on and on. Even think of something like um, caring. So caring your kids. So women and uh, dads too, we don't carry our children as much anymore Mm. as we did in the past. Well, like the the link between um, caring children and their development was like really important for humanity. I mean, it really shaped us and it really shapes how um, a child grows up. And it's something that we don't do anymore because like carrying your kid around all day is challenging. It's Mm kind of hard, right? Yeah. Um, I wrote a a deep, this isn't in the book, but I wrote this um, big deep dive on caring kids and why it's so important uh, in my newsletter, which is called 2%. It's at TWOPCT.com. But like the the research around it is really fascinating. And it's just one way that um, sort of us wanting to do, have things easier Mm -hmm. and more comfortable over time has changed us in a lot of ways that aren't always good. Yeah. That's fascinating. I never even thought about that. I do resonate with the getting outside. And I know when maybe I've proposed this or challenged women on this in the past, many of them say, well, I would love to, but I don't have enough time. And so that is one of the things I love about minimalism is that I do feel like I've gotten so many hours back in my day of not spending so much time doing housework and and picking up and all of that. So it is possible to spend so much more time outside. Well, let's talk a little bit about scarcity brain, because this is fascinating too. So um, for those who aren't familiar with the book, can you give us a quick overview of what scarcity brain is all about? Yeah. I mean, so the big question, like everyone knows that everything is fine in moderation, but then the question is like, okay, well, why do we all suck at moderating? (laughs) (laughs) And it's because humans um, very much evolved to crave and consume. So everything from food to stuff to information to the number of people we could influence, we evolved to crave those things because in the past, all those things were scarce. And if you had those things like food, like tools, like possessions, you would have a survival advantage. Hmm. Now, we live in a world today where we have an abundance of all those things, right? Like we throw out about a third of our food. The average home has more than 10,000 items. Yeah. Um, but we still have that sort of evolutionary hardware telling us, oh, no, you need more. You should mm-hmm. definitely make that other purchase. You should definitely eat a little more food. Yeah. You should definitely spend more time on the internet going down information rabbit holes that eventually drive you crazy. And so, <laughs> again, it's just, um, you know, humans very much evolved to sort of live a certain way. And the way we live now is in many ways at odds with that. And that can kind of come into conflict. Yeah. Will you talk a little bit about, because, you know, probably one of the biggest downfalls I'm thinking about as you're saying that is social media. So can you tell us how social media uses the same tactics as like casinos and gambling? 
Yeah. And so uh, I, I live in Las Vegas and you see strange stuff here, but people play slot machines like around the clock. Mm -hmm. And we have slot machines in Las Vegas, like everywhere. They're in the gas stations, the grocery stores, all these places. And so because I'm a journalist and like, if I see something where I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because like everyone knows the house always wins, right? It's yeah. like, I got to, I got to find out why. So long story short, this question that leads me to this uh, lab, it, well, it's a casino on the edge of Las Vegas, but it's used entirely for human behavior research. So it's funded by uh, casino companies. It's funded by big tech companies. What they're doing there is basically figuring out all the sort of levers they can pull to get people to gamble more in casinos. Mm -hmm. So it's like a very, it's a very strange place. But when I'm there, I get to the bottom of like, okay, how does a slot machine work? And it works on this three-part system that I call the scarcity loop. So it's got three parts. It's got opportunity, it's got unpredictable rewards, and three, it has quick repeatability. So opportunity, uh, you have an opportunity to get something of value, right? Something that'll enhance your life. With slot machines, it's money. Mm -hmm. Two, unpredictable rewards. You know you'll get the reward at some point if you repeat the behavior, but you don't know when and you don't know how rewarding it's going to be. Okay. Right? So, so with slot machines, it's like you play a game, you could lose you could win a dollar or you could win like $10,000 and your life changes. Yeah. There's this crazy range of outcomes. And then three, quick repeatability. You can repeat the behavior over and over and over. So like there's no pause or anything. So that's what makes slot machines work. Like that mm. system just, it not only hooks uh, humans, but I came across this really fascinating research that like all animals will fall into this system and get obsessed with it. They'll just play over and over and over. Now, Las Vegas very much like dialed in this system to make slot machines work in the 80s. And when they did that, it 10x the revenue of slot machines. And slot machines all of a sudden became like the main workhorses of casinos. And over time, you started to see a lot of other industries look at that and go, oh my God, they're getting people to just spend time on these devices doing this thing where they know they're going to lose if they yeah. do it, the more they do it. Right, right. But they do it anyways. <laughs> And so you had companies like big tech companies um, start inserting that system in all different technology. I mean, it's now mm -hmm. in um, it's now in dating apps. It's what makes dating apps really work. It's in personal finance apps. But I think it's probably most powerful and prevalent in the average person's life in social media. Yeah. So if you think about social media, it falls into that system. It's like if you post, you have an opportunity to get status right through likes mm -hmm. and comments and whatever but you don't know how many likes you're gonna get. You don't know how many comments you're gonna get. You don't know if they're gonna be good comments. You don't know if they're gonna be bad. Like you don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah. You could go viral or someone could tell you you're ugly, right? <laughs> um, and then because of that, because of that randomness, you just check and recheck all day. And Facebook, I believe they, um, they slowly send out your posts so that you continue to get this reward over time. So even a day later, you could check back and have more results added to it. So I mean, they really have this dialed in, right? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. it's perfectly dialed. In. So one thing that's really interesting is like everyone criticizes gambling. And it's like, oh, gambling's evil. But if you look at gambling, like that industry is so heavily regulated. I mean, the casino industries know like, hey, if we did these 10 things, we would get people to gamble way more. We'd fleece them even more. But there's regulations around it. Okay. With social media, there's none of that. Yeah. Like the good example, like a example like you just brought up is when you load, say, Twitter or Instagram, whatever it is, the alerts that you get could pop up instantaneously, but they don't. Mm. There's always like three seconds where it takes that to just be like, oh, you have 
20 notifications or whatever it is. And that is the exact same phenomenon of reels spinning. So it's it's yeah. in the it's in the spinning of the reels, the rolling of the dice, the waiting for the alert to come in when you know it's going to tell you something. That just grabs human attention better than anything. Yeah. And I've even heard you mention that this is what like reality TV does too. Cause I think often we, we wonder the same thing. Like what is wrong with me that I cannot like look away from these reality TV shows? I know it's not good for me, but I can't stop watching. Oh yeah. It, it's definitely in reality TV. And I am, uh, I shamelessly have admitted that I love real housewives of Salt Lake city. That's one of my favorite shows. Um, <laughs> and reality TV works on that. So if you think yeah. about it, it's like you have these, you got this opportunity for, uh, entertainment, right? Mm -hmm. But they, they purposefully grab characters that are going to create drama, unpredictability, yep. right? So it's like on any given episode, the housewives could get along. Things are great. Or, or <laughs> we might be tearing each other's hair out. We might throw drinks in each other's faces, like just absolute chaos. And um, you just want to keep watching and watching and watching. And so uh, an yeah. interesting case study that really sort of proves that idea is the very first season of The Real World. What the producers did is they're like, okay, we're going to get this uh, group of people. We're going to put them in the house. We're going to put cameras on them. Um, but they picked all people who were, pretty reasonable, pretty normal, pretty friendly, oh, nice mm -hmm. people. It was the mm -hmm. most boring show ever. Yeah. You're just watching people sit around a table eating pizza going like, do you like right. the pizza? Like it's so boring, <laughs> right? You want to get people who are going to, they're going to over drink. They're yep. going to fight. They're going to go crazy because it's unpredictable. <laughs> yeah. You totally see that. On, I remember when my husband and I were watching the amazing race too. And I'm like, at the beginning of the season, you're like, oh, that's the couple that's going to fight the whole way through the race. Right. And we had Joe too. I'm like, if we went on that show, him and I would be that couple too. I'm like, they would cast <laughs> us just for that because we never agree on anything. So at every turn we would be having an argue argument, but it's so true. And honestly, I even noticed this with YouTube too, because people, they don't want you to be clickbait. They don't want you to be overly dramatic. But the truth is, is that if there is nothing interesting going on, no one's actually going to watch it. Yeah. So it, it goes back to that. We focus on unpredictable things, especially when they are filled with sort of drama or um, controversy or whatever that might be. And the reason is um, a lot of it goes back to uh, evolution. And if you were the type of human who paid attention to say, you know, drama and the controversy, you probably have a survival advantage because you don't know what's going to happen mm, with that. Right. Okay. If you're the, if you're the person who's like sniffing the flowers all the time and there's like, you know, this person who, you know, has their eyes out for you and they've got a knife in their hand, like you're not going to live. Right. You want to be the person who's like overly tuned into sort of social dramas and things like that and danger. It's hard to think of that now as a survival tactic, right? Because <laughs> most of us don't have to, but we do end up wasting so much time on social media and reality TV. So what's the solution? I mean, I think for most of us, trying to consume it in moderation doesn't actually really work. It's definitely hard. Um, and then there's this other tension too, that it's like, it's not all bad. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so like, for example, you know, there's things that I hate about, say, Instagram, mm -hmm. but I also have to be honest and be like, I've met some great people on Instagram right. and I have good, like I message stupid videos back and forth with my wife. Mm -hmm. And that's like, a that's a fun thing. So I think that if you look at what slows down or reduces all these behaviors that fit into this scarcity loop, which is 
I mean, it's everything from like social media. It's um, most apps that tend to mm-hmm. take too much of your attention fall into that. It's also in food system. It's also, I mean, it's a lot of places, but you can um, either change or get rid of any of the three parts. So you can change what the opportunity is. So for example, with social media, it's like people join it because they want to, you know, connect with their friends and family, but then they find themselves using it for all these different reasons beyond that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think getting really clear on like, why am I using this? You can take away the unpredictable rewards or you can slow down the behavior. So take away the quick repeatability. And I think that one's a pretty powerful one for, for phone use. So even just having like as stupid and simple as it sounds, making it a, pain to get on your phone mm-hmm. will mean means that you're going to use it less. And there's also, um, there's this app that I love. It's called clear space. The founders of it reached out to me and they're like, Hey, we have this app that helps you use your phone less. And you know, my initial thought was, so I have to use my phone in order to use my phone less, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I tried it. And what it does is, uh, you, you choose like an app that you want to, um, sort of restrict or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when you want to go on it, it just like makes you wait a little bit. Like you have to go through that. You do this breathing technique. You decide, okay, do you, are you sure you want to use the app? And a lot of times you'll be like, actually, no, I just sort of opened it mindlessly. Yeah. And then right. if you, if you decide, okay, I do want to use the app. And then it says, okay, well, how long do you want to use it for? So now, because a lot of mm. times you'll go on social to be like, I need to send a message to this person. Right. And you send the message and then you're there for like another hour Mm -hmm. looking at nonsense. And so then it'll shut it down after the time period is up. And so this relies on, I mean, this is backed by a lot of years of behavioral research to work. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, um, I think it's just figuring out how can you change those three parts of the loop. And my book gets into a lot of that. Yeah. That's awesome. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about creativity, but this this scarcity loop actually also just made me think of one other thing. Uh, I was listening to a podcast with Mel Robbins, and she had an expert on narcissism on it. And the the expert on narcissism was saying people on the outside will often criticize their friends and say, why do you stay in that relationship? He's clearly not treating you well. You have all of this drama and heartache. And it is actually because of this exact same thing, because when they are kind and loving, it's really good, but you don't know when that's going to come around. And so many of these people are willing to stay in that toxic relationship for those infrequent times when they actually do get the reward. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, and it explains why um, sometimes people like the bad boy or the bad girl, mm-hmm. right? It's like, you can't, if things like the, you know, the, the people who are always nice all the time, always buying you flowers, always doing whatever, like that eventually kind of gets boring. Yeah. Like we, we definitely like unpredictable characters. Unfortunately, that sometimes is not good for us. Yeah. So hopefully that at least it, it helped me understand a few things in my life. Or if you have people in your life who are like, I've tried to tell them, like I try to tell them it, it might at least it's kind of like gambling. So it's a, it, it runs deep. It's not always just a, you can have one conversation <laughs> with them and solve that. So yeah. in your book, you talk about the relationship between scarcity and creativity. So can we talk a little bit about this? And I, I do want to link this into how we're raising our kids as well too, because what are some adjustments we might need to be making as we're parenting to in regards to this stuff? Yeah. So the long story short of this is that when people face scarce resources, 
they tend to get creative on how they're going to solve a problem. So if a problem arises and you've got all the resources in the world, you're just going to throw resources at it. You're going to throw money at it. You're going to buy mm -hmm. some tool that's specifically built to solve the problem. Um, but if you don't have those resources, you have to get creative in solving the problem. So there's mm -hmm. these there's these really interesting series of studies where um, scientists will basically set up what I just mentioned. They'll um, have a group that has a bunch of resources. They'll have a group that doesn't have many resources, and then they'll have them solve the same problems. And the group who has fewer resources, they don't just solve the problem. They actually solve it in a more interesting, better way and in a more creative mm -hmm. way. And yeah. they're actually able to do more with less over the long run. And so, I, I mean, when you think about it with parenting, it's like, not giving, I think having your kids figure out how they can use the resources that you've given to them to mm -hmm. do, um, to do more interesting things, whether it's yeah. like creating projects in school, whether it's even learning, whatever it might be. I think mm -hmm. that that's a good way to sort of get kids' brains working. So when they get out into the real world, cause the reality is, is you're never going to have unlimited resources. Right. right? And so yeah. learning to thrive with less, I think is a key component of growth. I get a lot of pushback when I tell parents to pretty much get rid of all their kids' toys, but the reason, the, the creativity that I see, and we remember this from most of us from our own childhoods, remember, depending on how old we are. Um, I mean, my parents just would say, go outside and play, right? And the things we would come up with. And so now when I see this in our own kids, the things they come up with, because we have very few toys at home, but what they make with cardboard and tape and sticks and all, I mean, it is it is so cool. And so it's it's kind of sad to me that I feel like marketing is so strong telling us how many toys our kids need. And I've been accused of depriving our kids because we have so few toys. And, and I just want to be like, no, you don't actually understand. Our kids are happier and more con content when they are creating. And so, I mean, were we, were we designed to be creative and to be creating? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're definitely a creative speed. Well, the other thing I'll say though, is that, um, so in the comfort crisis, I talk a lot about the, the value of boredom. Mm. And if you look at, um, how people spend their time now, we spend anywhere from 12 to 13 hours, uh, engaged with digital media. So anytime we feel bored, we have screens, we have iPads, we have a computer, we have our phone, whatever it might be. So we can instantly kill boredom. And going through a bit of boredom is actually really good for um, not only for things like stress, but also for creativity. Mm -hmm. So boredom, just generally, it's neither good nor bad. What boredom really is, is it's this discomfort, this evolutionary discomfort that basically tells you whatever you're doing with your time right now, the return on your time invested is worn thin. So it basically tells you, go do something else. So okay. if you think about it with kids, it's like they're sitting around and you know they start to get bored like throwing an iPad at them is one thing, but it's just going to like suck up their time, you know, more mm -hmm. screen time, who knows what the heck they're doing on there. But if you just let them go through a little bit of boredom, they're going to have to start to get creative around, okay, how am I going to deal with this? Yeah. They might start to create things. They might come up with interesting ideas. They might start to color. They might be like, oh, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do like yeah. all these different things, right. you know, instead of mm -hmm. just giving them the next easiest yeah. thing and also letting them figure it out. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So like the parent doesn't have to be like, oh, you're bored. Well, here you must play with these Legos. Yeah. <laughs> you can just go, well, hey, figure it out, dude. Yeah. That's actually what I say to my kids. I say, that's not my problem to solve. <laughs> and so, I mean, they just know now they'll once in a while slip up and they say it and I'm like, you can unload the dishwasher, but otherwise that's not my problem <laughs> to <Yeah>. solve. <laughs> but again, I, I think sometimes on the outside, I mean, I'm only half joking, but sometimes when it's taken out of context, I think parents are like, well, that's rude or that's, you know, dismissive or whatever. But 
because I have seen the result of it and I've seen, I really feel like our kids are most content when they are doing something creative, whether it's writing a play or making something on cardboard or coming up with an adventure outside. And so what a gift that we can give to our kids because my goodness, what a busy and noisy world that they are, they are growing up in. So, I mean, do you have any guidelines or ideas as far as social media? When do we introduce that to our kids? When do we allow it? When not? Or do you not really go there with that? <laughs> no, this is, a, this is a tough one. I mean, here's, uh, I will, um, I'll give you uh, some analogies based on research around addiction. Mm -hmm. So when kids basically start going through puberty until the time they are about 25, their brains are changing um, profoundly. And all these, th all these things start happening that really shape them uh, as they become adults. Now, one of the things um, is that kids, uh, one, social connections start to become really, really important, like way more important than they ever are uh, at any other point in our lives. Number two is that they uh, become more okay with risk taking and they're mm -hmm. terrible at risk judgment, just terrible. Um, <laughs> there's like some hilarious studies about that. And then number three is that they're finding uh, where they get comfort, like how do they soothe mm, themselves? Yes. So for those reasons, you start to see like in the field of um, addiction research with like substances is mm -hmm. that um, most people develop uh, substance addiction when they're in their teens. Uh, so for example, if a, if a person drinks at age 15 or younger, they have a 50% chance of becoming an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. If they, if they wait to drink until they're 21, they have only a 10% chance. And that's okay. simply because of what's happening in the brain. Yeah. And now the, the reality is, is that it isn't just, um, you know, drugs and alcohol that people can use to sort of escape and like soothe themselves and calm themselves. Mm -hmm. Social media absolutely does that. I mean, yeah. it's totally an escape or else you wouldn't see people spending hours a day on it. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, and then, so you factor in that, mm -hmm. like, they're going to use this thing as an escape, possibly. You factor in the fact that being social and social sort of rank is more important than ever. Than ever. You factor that in and it's kind of a recipe for increased likelihood of having, um, I would say, mental health problems. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And I, what I think what would be encouraging for any parents who are listening who are like, wow, I've messed up in this area, or maybe I've allowed more than I should, um, or I can already tell my kids are addic addicted to technology. Um, I really like what you have talked about, the difference between gratitudes, but then fasting from things, because I think we could introduce some fasting <laughs> from some of these things that our kids do spend so much time on to help reset their brains, so to speak. Just going without is... Um will lead to less frequency of a behavior that you want to, um, reduce. And I think it also, you know, like it just will expose them more to the real world and help them figure out how can I find other ways to deal with whatever I'm using for social media, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I understand that it is totally a battle for parents and a hard call because mm -hmm. if all of your, you know, teenagers friends are on social media and being social is really important, but you're not on there. Yep. Well, that's kind of weird. So I think it's almost got to be like parents have to, you know, try to unite in mm -hmm. a way to just reduce it. And there's actually, I mean, it's interesting because I'm sure you've talked about this, but there's, you know, states are trying to figure out laws that to sort of reduce the frequency at which teens use social media. Yeah. And I know, you know, even last Christmas, we 
we kind of messed up. We got our kids a, a Nintendo Switch for Christmas. They're nine through 14. We had never had like any iPads or video games or stuff. And then finally we're like, okay, like we don't want our kids to be so weird that they don't even have a Nintendo Switch. And so we got it. And you know, it, we, we, were, we did that thing where like in the beginning, we're pretty good about moderating it. You get it for this much time each day. But then as like winters in Minnesota get really long and everything, I was like, whatever, it's keeping them quiet. I'm getting stuff done. And, and so we found ourselves in this place of like, I was like, oh no, they're like living on it all day. But what was fascinating to me was that we just took it away then. Yes, did they grumble and they were annoyed about that? We took it away. And after a couple of days, no one even asked for it anymore. And they were able to go on. And um, Kim John Payne from Simplicity Parenting, he says that for most kids, even that are addicted to electronics, that if you will give them two weeks to reset and kind of detox from it, that most kids then can kind of bounce back out of that, again, become creative on their own again. And so I... I don't want any parents right now to feel like, oh my goodness, I have ruined my children because we have done this. Is it going to take some intentionality? Might there be some battles? Absolutely. But I think they're they're worth picking. Oh yeah, I think so too. I mean, the reality is, is that kids are resilient too. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll fight you, but they'll, they'll get over it and they'll figure it out yeah. and they'll find something that's going to be better for them in the long run. And honestly, I mean, so our oldest is 14. She doesn't have social media. Most of her friends do. In the beginning, it, it was tough and she pushed back on us a lot. I was too strict, you know, all these different things. But now she actually thanks us because she does see how obsessed some of her friends get with getting the perfect picture for Instagram. Did people like this or, um, you know, respond to it? And so there might be a window of time where you like your kids just really don't get what you're doing. But I do think it if you stick with it, that they will eventually understand, too. So let's talk a little bit more about this idea of. Uh, of, again, kind of even now as adults, how we can reset a little bit because you had shared some research that gratitudes don't necessarily lead us to more contentment, um, but sometimes we have to go without this stuff to, to find that. Yeah. Uh, gratitude journaling or mm -hmm. is that what you mean? Yeah. So um, everyone's probably heard the advice that, you know, gratitude journaling will make you more uh, grateful. Mm -hmm. But if you if you look at what really seems to move the dial, it's going without things for a while. It's mm -hmm. like forced scarcity. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. It's like I never once in my life had appreciated the fact that hot running water comes out of the faucet because like, why would you? You're just born into it. And it's this thing that's just always there. And then for the comfort crisis, I went and I spent a month in the backcountry in the Arctic where I'm freezing cold the entire time. There's like no running water. <laughs> There's none of that. And so when I get back into civilization, it's like when hot running water hits my hands, it's like the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. You're just like, <laughs> oh my God, this is unbelievable. And so you never, you, there's just so much that's um, truly amazing about being alive today yeah. that we just don't even notice because yeah. like we're, you're kind of like a, a fish who doesn't know they're in water. Mm -hmm. So you kind of need to leave the water some yeah. sometimes. And yeah. I really do think that's the only way to really truly like appreciate and be grateful for things. I mean, and, and yeah. you see this in a lot of, I mean, it's backed up by a lot of neuroscience, but also, I mean, it's backed up by like thousands of years of religious myths too. Yeah, absolutely. I think we we kind of like rediscovered camping in the last few years. And for those who don't camp often from the outside, it's like, 
why would you like, why would you rough it? Why would you want to go without? And it is amazing that like reset that takes place when you are camping, um, not only uh, obviously being in nature and like what that provides, but then just the, like it is the appreciation, like, oh, I can come home and put my clothes in the washing machine and we don't have to like try and spot treat stuff while we're out camping and everything. I remember too, during uh, COVID, I'd read the book. Uh, it was by John Eldridge. It was Take Your Life Back. And he was talking about kind of just the majesty of nature and how we don't appreciate it anymore and how it really can help us to put things in perspective because things are so much bigger. And so I committed to going for a walk every day, but with no AirPods, no phone, like no nothing. And I remember I was like five days in and I call my sister and I'm like, I'm like, Diana, the clouds are different every single day. Like every single day, they're, they look completely different. They're different shapes. They're different sizes. They're, you know, and I'm just like, that is so silly to me that I I did not even notice like the trees or the clouds anymore. And you actually do find a lot of comfort. I mean, I remember, especially during COVID, just like walking by like the cornfields by our house. And I'm like, you know, that the world is going to hell right now. We have no idea what's going on, but the corn, it still came up and it looks the exact same as the corn last summer. And when I was eight years old and we do find so much, like there is so much comfort in the consistency of nature and the perspective that comes with us. But again, like you said, most of us are inside 95% of the day. Yeah. I mean, I think the comfort crisis, I have a long section on nature and uh, this idea called the nature pyramid, which is kind of tells people how much nature you should get and what types mm. of nature. So okay. this idea, it's, you can think about it like the food pyramid, right? You should have okay. this many servings of grain, this many servings of meat. So at the bottom of the pyramid, um, it suggests 20 minutes, three times a week in the type of nature that you could find in like a city park. Okay, That's associated with uh, decreases in stress and increases in uh, productivity and creativity. Okay. And then the next rung up the pyramid is five hours and that's five hours a month in the type of nature that's a little more rugged, kind of like a state park. Mm -hmm. So you'll still get service, but like you might be on a trail. Uh -huh. uh, that is associated with increases in happiness and decreases in depression. And that's from a, mm -hmm. a massive uh, study in Finland. Mm -hmm. And then at the very top is three days at least once a year in backcountry nature. So this yeah. is like, you're going to have to hike in, you may not mm -hmm. get cell service. That leads to some really interesting changes in the human brain where we start to ride what are called alpha waves, which are the same waves that are found in experienced meditators. And they're associated mm. with like calm, collectedness, like better ideas, just like all these yeah. things, qualities that we want a person to have. And it doesn't wash off when you get home either. Mm. So there's like a lot of uh, research institutions now who are looking into extended time in nature as a way to treat uh, PTSD in veterans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard of therapy groups that take place in gardens now and different things. Like it's fascinating. That's mm -hmm. That's really cool. Well, and what I like is that, I mean, it, it hopefully for most who are listening, it, it it doesn't cost money. Now, I mean, the trips into the backwoods might cost a little bit. You might want to go a little bit prepared. Um, but most things to get outside every day, to take your kids outside every day, it doesn't actually cost us anything. And so that's awesome. Well, yeah. so Michael, what's next? Are there any upcoming projects? What's your next research that you want to do? Where do you go from here? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Um, I, I'm focusing a lot of uh, resources and attention now on my newsletter, which is uh, called 2%. 
And that's simply because, you know, when I write a book, it's like a three-year project. And the, the book might be 100,000 words, but I've written 300,000 words. And it's like, okay, where does all that stuff go? And so writing the newsletter goes out uh, three times a week. It allows me to sort of um, write in the present tense and write about mm -hmm. sort of what's happening now and what's on my mind and all these topics that we've been talking about. So, and that's at uh, yeah. TWOPCT.com. Awesome. Yeah, we will definitely link to that. That that sounds fascinating. And well, let's face it, how most of us consume information these days is probably more bite-sized. <laughs> but yeah. I do highly recommend both of your books. And like I said, I do love that they they go hand in hand with minimalism. I know uh, it, it was it was actually strange to me when it, when we decluttered like the bulk of our stuff and I'm like, "Wow, I don't miss any of it. In fact, life is so much better without this." And so I love how how this goes along with that. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. I really enjoyed chatting. Thank you for joining us on the Minimal Mom podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend who might find value in embracing a simplified life.